Well, how's everyone doing this evening? Good. We're going to try to get through chapters 11 and 12, or the first part of chapter 12, at least first half. And, um, and we got a lot of ground to cover, so why don't we, uh, we dive in, we'll pray, and, and then we'll dive into the notes. Alright, let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a, what a pleasure it's been, Father, to be able to, to read Your Word, to study it, um, but more importantly, to hear from You and to hear Your heart. And so, Father, tonight as we continue on in this study, and as we continue on to see really some incredible stories of faith, incredible testimonies of how people have trusted You, may we leave here encouraged, may we leave here with a better sense of hope for what lies ahead, may we leave here with a better perspective on really what's important, but more importantly, may we leave here knowing and trusting You in a better and deeper way. So, Father, I ask You to be the teacher because nobody here, myself included, needs to hear from me alone. They need to hear from You. And so, may these people be blessed by what You say through me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's start with, uh, with some review. And we're going to review a little bit of chapters uh, 9 and 10, um, in part because they're so great, and then in part because... Um, sometimes you wish you just had a do-over. And uh, I wish I had a bit of a do-over last time. So in chapter 9, uh, the writer of Hebrews um, was starting to write about the better promises, or some of the better promises, that are in this new covenant. And it's a new and wholly different covenant, a very different covenant. And, and so he began to talk about them. And in chapter 9, he started to talk about the complete forgiveness the total forgiveness. You remember in the Old Covenant, the, the, um, the priests would offer sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, day after day, and they could never take away the sins. At best, all they could do was atone for them. And that meant just to cover them. But they still kind of remained against them. And so the, the guilt they still felt, the, 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 all the concerns along with that, but also it never actually changed them. They were still the same people. And so it was an incomplete forgiveness under the Old Covenant. But along comes Jesus, and He enters into the Holy of Holies, but not on earth, where? Up in heaven. He enters into the real deal. Here on earth was just a shadow, just a copy. But Jesus, He entered into the real Holy of Holies, up in heaven, and He entered by His own blood. He didn't enter in by the blood of bulls and goats, which could never take away the sins. Instead, He entered into the Holy of Holies by His own blood, and there He took away our sins. He propitiated is the word, which again we saw means a wrath-averting sacrifice. Or simply means He just took away our sins. They're gone. They're no longer held against you. He says, I will remember your sins no more. They're forever gone. Every single one of your sins. Isn't that incredible that He forgave all your sins? Because at the end of it, He sat down, which is something that the high priests and other priests of the Levitical uh, covenant, the old covenant, could never do. They can never sit down because they are constantly working. They are constantly serving. But Jesus now, it is finished. It's done. So we've had complete forgiveness and along with that, complete sanctification. We've been made holy. We've been made righteous. We've been made acceptable. And again, it's not based on what you do, but based on the complete and finished work of Christ. It is completely done. 
And so you can't, you cannot simply outsin God's grace. That's so incredible. Because what he's done is he's made us whole new people, forgiven, sanctified, all because of what he's done, not because of what we've done. Now, what's the great fear if people hear this idea that, you know, you can't outsin God's grace? What's the fear that's going to happen? That you'll what? You'll go and sin. But then that's the great answer to the Romans chapter 6 and 7. God forbid you'd ever do that. Don't you realize that when you died to sin, you were set free from sin? So in that sanctification process now that, that God has done, He actually gives us new desires where you don't actually want to sin anymore. Because the old you died, the one that wanted to sin died, the, the slave to sin died, and now you're a new people, new creations that are righteous and holy. And so we saw a little bit of that in chapters 9 and the first part of chapter 10. And then the second part of chapter 10, we saw there's the warning. And this is, along with Hebrews 6, um, a very solemn and very serious and very sobering warning. It was a warning against those who had received this wonderful gift to not trample the blood of the covenant, to not reject what God has done. Now, we, we looked at some things and we, we immediately dismissed the idea that it's about... Um, or that it's a warning towards unbelievers. Now, it's true that unbelievers have trampled the blood of the covenant. They have rejected Jesus, and therefore a terrifying expectation of judgment awaits them. However, when we looked at it in more detail, we saw that the language that was being used, these are people who have received the knowledge of the truth. These are people who have been sanctified, it says in verse 29. So, it's not talking to the unbelievers, talking to the believer, you and I which might sound a bit unsettling because of the strong language of the words, but we immediately dismiss the idea that it's referring to the believer's security. Because the believer is eternally secure. If not, then everything that he just said in chapters 9 and 10 would have to be dismissed. Because now we are no longer sanctified. We are no longer forgiven. Because now we're really under the gun. And then when you look at it again, remember it started off with, for the one who's willfully sinning. Well, every sin is a willful sin in that case. Meaning every time we would sin, we would be in trouble, and now God's grace has a limit. It's capped. But the reality is, you simply cannot outsin God's grace. You never want to as Christians, but you could never do it if you tried. I'm not recommending it, by the way, but you never could. So, to take a look at this warning then, we looked at, and have to remember, that the warning is for the Jewish Christians. Probably the Jewish Christians that were living in and around Jerusalem. And that's really important to understand, because remember, this letter isn't written specifically to you. The letter instead was written specifically to them. And really what we're doing is we're reading another person's mail. You know what I mean by that? We're reading someone else's uh, letter and, and information and guidance. And so what we need to be a little bit careful of is in the application of that. That we don't misunderstand that, we don't misapply it. So uh, it's helpful to understand that these Jewish Christians were going through extreme suffering, extreme persecution. They were being ridiculed publicly, they were being attacked uh, they were being beaten, some of them. Some of them were having their goods legally stolen, meaning that you were allowed to come in and take their goods, and they were surrendering them. 
people were hungry. There are all kinds of persecutions and sufferings that these people, these Jews are going through. And the temptation for them was to turn their back on the fact that they're Christians. To publicly uh, revert back to Judaism. Well, maybe in their heart they're always believing that Christ is the, the Savior, the Messiah. They would publicly just go back to the Mosaic Ten Commandments. And because of that specific sin, that was the sinning willfully, that was the rejecting of Jesus publicly, that was the terrible expectation of judgment that would come. And so they're very strong words, very serious words, because of the very serious sin that they were doing, which is publicly rejecting Jesus. And the reason that was so serious is because it would send the message to all the other people. Well, here are these people who used to think Jesus is the Messiah. Now they're denying Jesus is the Messiah. I guess he's not. And that's a very serious warning because now it's a stumbling, stumbling stone or a stumbling block to other people. And so there's a very serious warning for them. For you and I, we have to be careful then when we come to applying it. And so for today, we face a similar but not an identical sort of willful rebellion. Now it's true, we could reject Jesus in that way very publicly and return back to some other form of religion and so forth. But really that's not likely so much so in Canada. We don't face nearly the same degree of religious persecution in Canada as the Jews would. In fact, any, you know, for the most part, the religious persecution that a lot of Christians face tends to be self-inflicted. Because you, know, you, walk, you turn on the TV and see these, these TV evangelists or commentators spouting off their mouth, and they tend to be incurring a lot of wrath when they're really probably not speaking very, very much truth. They're just looking for publicity. And so sometimes we, we self-inflict that persecution. But for the most part, in Canada, we're not facing this level of persecution that these Jewish Christians were. However, we can make a similar sort of uh, willful sin. In the sense that we could openly choose to deny the ability of God to provide and care for us, and instead look to others to meet those needs. So in other words, what happens is we are faced with an option to trust Jesus to provide what we need, or we can trust in our flesh and our own resources to get those needs met. Now remember, this is a, a willful sin. So it's not talking about the sin where you just kind of stumble along and you're fighting temptation and you fall into it and you do it. Or one that you don't even recognize what you're doing. This is one where you know what's happening and you are willfully rejecting, rejecting the trust in Jesus. And I don't know if you've seen this in people, but in the counseling office, Jacqueline and myself have. We've seen people. What we do is we help people to come to understand that what needs they are trying to meet through their flesh and how they're trying to do it. And then we lead them to make a choice to either give up on themselves and their flesh or trust in Jesus. And they need to choose one of the two. And many people, thankfully, they choose to trust Jesus. But sadly, there are many people as well that when they're faced with that choice, they choose to reject Jesus. And it's incredible. I mean, they go to Sunday, it's a school, or, sorry, church every Sunday, and they sing the songs, and they praise God. And, and if you were to ask them, they'd be more than willing to praise God. But when you catch them in that gut-honest moment, as we do in the counseling office, you start to see, really, the bitterness they have towards God. The rejection they have towards God. That they're not willing to trust Him. They refuse to. Uh, I can tell you many sad stories where that's the case. There was one man who was, who was seeking after his wife. And it was presented to him, either you can seek after your wife who wants nothing to do with you, 
or you can trust God to do a work in your wife. Because what he was trying to do was constantly trying to fix and change her. And how many people know if you try to constantly fix and change somebody, that annoys them, that upsets them. Well, she had enough of it. And so she wanted out out of the marriage and be gone with him. But he was determined to fix her. In fact, now he had even more ammunition that she was, there was something wrong with her. And so he was just you know speaking against her and so forth. And I kept on trying to help him realize that he needs to surrender. He needs to let God work in her heart and go to God and look for what he's trying to get met in God. But he wouldn't do so. He refused to do so. And, and I'm always you know, amazed at the openness of this. And again, this is this willful, determined rejection to trust something else. And I, you know what, to be honest, I know it firsthand. There was a moment in my life, many, many years ago, where I was faced between two things, between God and someone else. And I said, you know what, God, I love you, but I want this instead. And it was in that moment that God said, okay, you've, we've gone far enough here. And that's when my life began to turn around. So it was an incredible moment. In fact, it was the turning point in my life, I think. It was where I hit rock bottom where I was willing to pursue, really it was a girl, which makes it really sad, but I was willing to pursue a girl over God. And said, I want her more than you, God. And God said, okay, time to step in. And so he led me through some discipline, but again, that was the turning point to bring me to freedom. And so that's really what that warning is about here. And so, it, again, it's not referring to you know, some sins committed in a struggle, but just this openly willful rejection. And the judgment is not about God condemning us, but nor does it change the degree to how God loves and accepts us. So we have to understand that about the judgment. You know, these judgments really are discipline that God's going to deal with us. And in chapter 12, we're going to look at that in a, in a whole lot. But you see, for judgment, we start reading that verse... And, you know, it, un- it unsettles us. And rightfully so, I think. Because, again, it is a very so- sobering, very strong, very very powerful passage, that warning in chapter 10 of Hebrews. But at the same time, we don't need to be afraid of it. We really don't. We don't need to be afraid of the judgment of God. But I think for many Christians, when they think about the judgment of God, they think about something like this. This guy, this old man with a really mean, scornful look on his face, with the gavel in his hand, ready to pronounce you as guilty. Ready to just come after I mean, he's almost kind of climbing over the desk to get at you. But the reality is that's not our God. And, and for judgment, you and I, that day of judgment, we have nothing to fear. In fact, we can have confidence. That's what it says in 1 John 4, verses 15 to 18. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God's, God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. You don't need to be afraid of it. You can have confidence in the day of judgment. Why? Because as He is, so also are we in this world. Meaning, just as Jesus is loved, acceptable, and worthy, so are we when? Right now. 
in this world. So you don't need to be afraid of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. So if you're afraid of that judgment day, then I've got good news for you. Understand and see how much God loves you. Because when you start to get a glimpse, when you start to discover how wide, how incredible, how immense God's love is for you and I, then that fear will dissipate. And really, you know, you'll never, you'll never discover the incredible size of God's love. You'll never reach the end point of it. Because it's limitless. Because God is love. It's who He is. And so we, as we start to get to know Him and His character and the love that He has for you and I, then we discover that there is no fear in judgment. In fact, we can have confidence in the day of judgment. Because we know where we stand. We know that we're loved. We know that we're accepted. Amen? But there is judgment and discipline. But again, it's not about how God feels towards us. So the discipline and judgment that He gives to us does not affect His opinion of you. It doesn't change whether He loves you more or loves you less. Instead, it's all about really growth, really maturity. I mean, think about when you have to discipline your children. Do you love them any less when you discipline them? Do you love them any more if you don't have to discipline them or when you get to reward them? I hope not, because that's not the case. With children, we discipline them because we love them, but then it's all about growth. It's all about maturity. It's all about learning. It's not about you know determining whether they're acceptable or not. That's, in a way, again, what we see with God. So the judgment is not about punishment. It's about growth and maturity. So some illustrations of that, I think, is there's many illustrations throughout the Bible of God judging people. And for many different reasons. So, I mean, there's cases where he, he judges unbelievers and he judges wicked and evil people. We see that with Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that with people of Noah's day. We see it with maybe the sin of Onan, when Onan sinned, and how God would judge people. We saw it with, with uh, Cain and how God judged Cain. But he also judges his own people. But when he judges his own people, again, it's not about punishment. It's about the discipline. I mean, we read in Numbers 12 where Miriam became jealous of Moses. In fact, he, she was jealous because Mary, Moses married a Cushite woman. And so she began to get jealous of the fact that Moses is the one that's in charge. She's thinking, I'm the older sister here. Why is my little brother the one calling all the shots? It's not fair. I mean, we talk. We have we have understanding here from God. We should be able to one, the ones to be in power. And so she tried to run a little kind of takeover, a coup d'etat. And so Moses said, okay, let's talk to God about it. So Moses, Aaron, and Miriam were out there, and then God struck Miriam with leprosy. And Aaron repented right away because he realized things weren't going his way. And Moses, Moses prayed for Miriam. And so Miriam had to go sit on a little time out for seven days outside the, the compound, outside the city essentially, while the leprosy ran its course, I guess, or while she was leprous. And then after seven days, God healed her. But God wasn't trying to get and punish her. He was trying to teach Miriam about respecting authority and obedience. Or we read about in 2 Samuel 12. And you know this is the famous passage of, of David and Bathsheba and the sin that they commit, where David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then he compounds that sin many times over that ultimately results in Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, being killed. 
at David's instruction. So David set him up to be killed. He murdered him. And so then, you know, Bathsheba's pregnant. And then when, you know, Nathan confronts David and David is, you know, convicted of his sin, then God disciplines David and it's going to be the life of that baby. That child is, is not going to live. He's going to die. And so that's the discipline that God has on David. Now, we might say, well, that just doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right because that child was innocent. Well, in many ways, that child was saved a lot of grief because where is that child today? In heaven. Remember David said, that child will not come to me. I will go to it. So he knew he was going to see that child one day. But what God is God. He knows what he's doing. And he was sending a message to David. And, you know, it's interesting. Later on in David's life, David is, is old and he's having trouble keeping warm. And so his advisors come up with a plan for him. Anyone know what the plan was to keep him warm? Send some virgins to him that he may lie with them and they will keep him warm. And he can just snuggle with these young virgins. I mean, they're setting him up, right? But it's interesting. It says, but David did not sleep with them. He didn't cohabitate with them. Didn't have sex with them. Well, I think it's because he learned his lesson. Now, did God treat him any less? Did he love him any less as a result? No. I mean, David and Bathsheba were the great, 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 whatever great grandparents of Jesus. Remember, it was Bathsheba who gave birth to Solomon down the line. So God didn't look down upon these people. But there was discipline that was required. Or in 2 Samuel 24, where David takes a census. David again sins. And so then God comes to him and says, Okay, I'm going to give you three options. I give you seven years of famine to deal with. Or you can have three months on the run while your enemies chase you. Or I can give you three days of pestilence. What do you want? And David just says, Lord, I don't care. It's up to you. Just don't, give me into, don't deliver me into the hands of men. I find that interesting. That here is God willing to pronounce judgment. And He says, I will rather have your judgment than man's judgment. Because men are cruel. They will tear me to pieces. So Lord, I will come to you because you are merciful. And so He submitted Himself to God. We read about in Philippians 3, 18 and 19, there were people who, who were seeking after the pleasures of this world and as a result became enemies of the cross. And I think really this passage here really fits in with the one in the warning in Hebrews. So it talks about how they would, um, they would end up in ruin. And it's the same word that's used in Hebrews 10. That's translated destruction, but this idea of ruin, this idea of waste. Or in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 20, where Hymenaeus and Alexander were shipwrecked in their faith. They were teaching error. They were teaching about all kinds of wrong things, about how the resurrection already happened and so forth. And the result was they were leading many other people astray. And so Paul says, I handed them over to Satan to teach them not to blaspheme. It wasn't to get them. It wasn't to punish them. It wasn't to beat them up. It was so that they would not blaspheme. So again, it was to teach them that, w- that they would no longer teach air. And then, you know, maybe most famously, we have Acts 5, verses 1 to 11, of Ananias and Sapphira, and how they lie to the Holy Spirit, and how God strikes them dead. Now you might wonder, well, how could they learn anything? They're dead now. There's nothing to apply what they learned. Well, that's true for them, but the rest of the church got the message. It says there is now a fear, and, and I really, I think it was more of a, 
a, uh, a reverence towards God. Not a fear. Because remember, you know, in 1 John 4, we just read how God doesn't want us to be afraid of Him in that sense. But I think He does want us to respect Him. And so God's saying, hey, I'm not fooling around here. I'm not playing games. This isn't, you know, a contest for you to go and do what you want to show off to people. Instead, I want you to take this faith in me seriously. I want you to trust me. And so he sent the message, and people learned from that. Yes? Um, in First Timothy 1, 20, uh, because I have heard that some people take that verse also to say that that God sent, like, gave them to Satan, so that means that you can lose your salvation in relationship with Jesus. So how, I, would, I would liken it to how what happened with Job. And how Satan attacked Job. Now, did Job lose his salvation? No. He was righteous by faith before, during, and after. So he didn't lose his salvation that way. It was just that now Satan was doing a number on him for the purpose of teaching him a lesson. Same thing about when we read in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, Hand the guy who's sleeping with his father's wife over out. Send him out. So that Satan may destroy his flesh, that he might be reconciled later on, so that he would return home. So it isn't about salvation, it's to now, really, here are the consequences, full on, take them, and experience them, and then you'll see the misery of it, and come back. Yeah. Now, does that mean every illness, disease, and death is a judgment from God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, and, you know, be really careful. Be really careful on that. Because there are many people that look at it that way. There are people who come up to, um, you know, Job's friend, for example. They came to Job and they said, Job, we see what's going on in your life. And obviously, clearly, there must be some hidden sin in your life. So what is it? And so for 20 plus chapters, they just hounded Job. What's the sin, Job? What's the sin? What's the sin? Come on. Are you, are you cheating on your wife? You know, do you have a, a stash of drugs? Are you dealing drugs? Are you hurting children? Are you a mafia crime lord? What's going on, Job? Tell us. You can be honest with us now. You're, you're, the gig's up. It's all out. Everybody knows. What is it? And that wasn't the case. In fact, what did God think of his three friends afterwards? wasn't too pleased with him. And he said, you need to go and offer some sacrifices and apologize to Job and have Job forgive you for the way you treated him. So that's not the case. Or think about in John chapter 9, how the man who was born blind and Jesus comes up to him uh, and sees him and the disciples ask, who sinned, him in the womb or his parents? And Jesus said, neither, no one. In fact, it's to your advantage that he was blind that you might see God glorified today. So every illness and sin, or every illness, sorry, is not necessarily a product of their sin and judgment. That's simply not the case. Okay? So let's be abundantly clear. Because a lot of people can be hurt that way. Uh, many of you know who Frank Friedman is. He's a pastor down in the States, an incredible pastor and teacher. And he has a little girl named Avery who was born with all kinds of health problems, all kinds of muscle issues. She's been through countless surgeries and all kinds of problems. And when she was born and hanging on for dear life, someone came up to Frank and said, What sin have you done? What have you done to cause her this, to have this pain? Well, I think it, this guy said it on the phone, which is a good thing, because otherwise Frank would have been guilty of another sin called murder. Because he just, you know, it's so cruel, it's so heartless to say something like that. So, unless God makes it abundantly clear to you, like writing on the wall type clear to you that someone is going through something because of their sin, then I suggest you be quiet about it. 
Because A, you know, he probably doesn't need you to tell him that. He can speak to them directly about that himself. So be really, really careful because a lot of damage comes from this sort of thing. Okay? Well, now let's return back to the text here we want to get to. And the reason we start again here in Hebrews 10 is because really starting in Hebrews 10 verse 19 and all the way to the middle of chapter 12 really, you know, needs to be treated as one whole passage. Because it all flows into it. I mean, we could have started at Hebrews 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 1, you know, and just began right into that, that wonderful chapter, but it really just continues to flow from what was said before. Because, you know, in the original text, there was no chapter divisions. There was no even verse divisions. So we need to go back and do a little bit of review, because then I think you'll have a better appreciation of what we're going to look at in chapters 11 and 12. So in, in chapter 10... He had some words of encouragement. Remember the lettuce that we looked at? There were three different lettuces. So one was, let us draw near. Let us run to Him. Let us go to Him. Let us depend upon Him. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Don't lose trust. Don't disbelieve Him. Don't waver in that. And then finally, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So let us now encourage one another so that when you're struggling, I'll come along and encourage you. When I'm starting to struggle, you come along and encourage me. And that's going to help us to draw near and hold fast the confession. So the encouragement here is really going to be to draw near and hold fast the confession. And that's going to you know, then produce the love and good deeds. Does that make sense? So then after that, that's when he went into that grave, serious, and sober warning in chapter 10. And then afterwards now, he's going to return back to more encouraging. And he's going to start with first looking at the past. But remember the former days. Remember when you were first saved. Remember when after being enlightened, how you endured great conflict and sufferings. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So when you faced ridicule and abuse personally, and then when you were lumped in to other people facing ridicule and abuse. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. So you didn't fight, you didn't complain, you recognized it, it's okay, we're all right. Knowing that for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one remain. So there is this knowledge that there is something better to come. And so he starts with looking at the past, and then he begins to look to the future. Going on, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You've come so far. Don't stop now. There's something coming that's so wonderful, this great reward. For you have need of endurance. You have need to continue on. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come, and he will not delay. This was written 1900 years ago. How much closer are you and I today to this day? I mean, then it was a little while, or very little while. Now it would be a very, very, very little while, I'm guessing. I don't know the day. I hope it's soon, but I believe it's coming. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. That ruin really is the word there. But of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. 
So we don't need to worry about this, this destruction. We don't need to worry about it because we're going to have faith. And He's confident of this. He's assured of this. He's not worried that these people are going to hold on to their faith. Does that make sense? Well, that now brings us to chapter 11. This great hall of faith. And, and now to continue on with the encouraging, he's going to really recite through these wonderful, these incredible men and women of, of you know, the Jewish faith, the Old Testament saints. And it's meant to encourage these guys. It's meant to encourage them. And I think it would have been incredibly powerful to read about all their heroes, stories they had readily known and understood, and to begin to identify how they fit into all those. So he starts with defining what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith really is the guaranteed that there are better things to come even though you don't presently see them. That you may not even recognize truth, but it is still truth. See, how many people have ever felt unloved since you were saved? Well, what's the truth? We are loved. And so by faith, even though I don't feel loved, I can hold to the fact that I am loved. I may not feel acceptable, especially after I blow it. But by faith, I know that I am acceptable. I may not feel that that God is smiling towards me, but by faith, I can know that His attitude towards me is one of love. And so I can have that assurance, even though I don't see it, even though I don't feel it. I know it to be true by faith. By faith we gain approval. Verse 2, for by it men of old gained approval. Now I don't, I, I don't really believe this is referring to salvation. Because the word here for approval is never used to describe righteousness or sanctification or justification. It's never used in that manner. Plus, remember, he's trying to encourage people that are already saved. He's trying to encourage them to continue on and to live now by faith. That's really what makes this chapter one of the greatest chapters of all the Bible. So really what he's doing here by talking about gaining approval is simply that in order to please God, we need to do it by faith. Now, again, let's be abundantly clear, because often when we hear the idea of pleasing God, we get onto this treadmill, this idea of thinking, if I do more, God will be more pleased with me. Well, no, not in the sense that he'll love you more or love you less. He will be pleased, but again, it's no different than a parent is pleased when their child makes a good choice and sad when their child makes a bad choice. They don't love them any more or any less. They're just, they're pleased with them. I'm so happy you made a good choice. Or I'm sad when you don't make a good choice. So it's possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit, as it says in Ephesians 4, but it's also possible for us to please God. But it's done through faith. For by it, by faith, the men of old have gained approval. And so now he's going to go and explain some of their stories. So by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made of the things which were visible. God did not form this world through evolution. Evolution is simply, even from a scientific point, point of view, is, is foolishness. So God spoke things into existence. We know that by faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up, so that he would not see death, 
and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and a rewarder of those who seek him. You see, faith is absolutely vital, not just for salvation, but now for every step afterwards, for how we live. Because without it, you can't please God. Without it, it's your own flesh and your own self-effort. And it's worthless. The flesh profits nothing. But by trusting Him, Jesus can live through us. And so what's happening by trusting Him, we're seeking after Him. Knowing that as I trust Him and depend upon Him, He'll come through. And so the point of faith is that we seek Him. For in the process of trusting Him, we're living in and from Him and doing life together with Him. And that's what it's all about. It's about seeking after God and seeking after Him. Does that make sense? So faith is absolutely vital, both for salvation as well as now how we live, how we walk it out. Okay? He goes on then, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and he became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Notice that faith was an action. It wasn't by faith they sat there and did nothing. By faith they got involved. And so the same is true for you and I. By faith we're going to do something. We're going to move. And sometimes that means to wait, because that's what God asks us to do. And He says, I don't want you involved. I want you to sit in the sidelines and wait sometimes. But other times He says, I want you to get up and get going. And this is where I want to take you. But it's always going to involve an action of some sort. In verse 9, By faith he lived, talking about Abraham, as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which, ha- which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He wasn't looking for a kingdom on this world, in this planet. He was looking for something far greater, far more powerful. So it was a larger and better kingdom than what, we ha- what he could ever have on earth. It was about seeking after God. In verse 11, By faith even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead as that, at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. I mean, this must have just been music to these people's souls, to be reminded about how God was faithful to their ancestors. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So here we see these people were hungering. They were seeking and searching after God. God was the single most important thing in their life. 
It wasn't building a kingdom for themselves here. It wasn't about improving their life here. It was about knowing that there is someone out there that is worth it. And so they sought after Him and they seeked Him above all else. Verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. And it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received them back as a type. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. So they were looking forward, they were looking ahead. They knew what God was promised. They knew what God had said. Remember when God said to Abraham, for 400 years your people will, will remain in exile and then they will return home. So Joseph knew that. So 200 years before he died, before they left, he said, when I die, this is what I want you to do with my bones. And so when Moses and the children of Israel walked out, they carried the bones of Joseph. And by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Again, place yourself in the shoes of a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem at this time. Reading this, going through tremendous persecution, tremendous ill treatment, rejection, abuse, and then you read about Moses. One of the great characters of your history. And how he chose to endure such suffering. He chose to forego the pleasures of this world. And embrace suffering. Embrace difficulties. Because of the reward that was awaiting him. I mean, they would. I, I think they would have identified greatly with this. And they'd say, you know what? I, I see that. I get that. And I want to do what Moses did. I would rather trade the short-term pleasure for today for the long-term gain of an incredible reward, which is knowing Jesus. Verse 27, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. This should be really encouraging for you and I. First off, Rahab, she was a Gentile. She wasn't a Jew. And so how was she saved? By faith. But here's the other thing that's really encouraging for you and I. It was Rahab the harlot. So even that makes the hall of faith. God's not ashamed. He's not worried about the past. Not a problem. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell you of Gideon. I mean, think about Gideon, who had 300 men defeat a army of countless size. That's how the Bible describes it. They couldn't even count the number of people. 
And they've, you know, in the Bible, they talk about an army of 30,000, an army of 300,000. This time, it was an army you couldn't even count. And only 300 people with a torch and a horn defeated them. That was God. That was incredible. Of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets. I don't have time to tell you about all these people. My, my hand's getting tired writing this all out. But I could go on and on and on about all these great Old Testament stories who by faith they conquered kingdoms. Incredible. I mean, all the great stories of David and, and Samson, how they went and they slaughtered thousands of people. I mean, one, one case David went and he killed 300 Philistines just to get their foreskins. That's unbelievable. That's incredible. A little weird, but incredible. Absolutely incredible. Performed acts of righteousness. Obtained promises. Shut the, shut the mouths of lions. I mean, he's talking about Daniel here, who goes into the lion's den, a hungry, hungry lion's den, and he stays there the whole night, and these little kittens do nothing to him. And he just sits there. Absolutely incredible. I mean, what a, what a picture of that. What, I mean, could you imagine that in your mind's eye, what that would have been like for Daniel in that lion's den, knowing that God is looking after him? Or quench the power of fire. I mean, now you think about his three friends who got tossed into the, the fiery furnace. And they went in going that our God will rescue us. But even if he doesn't, he's still God. And we won't bow down and worship you. That's faith. That's trust. They're saying we're in God's hands to do whatever he wants with us. To rescue us or not rescue us. He's God and we will not waver in our belief in him. And what's so incredible is in both of these stories that as soon as Daniel leaves the lion's den, others get tossed in and the lions devour them. With the fiery furnace, it's so hot because Nebuchadnezzar is so enraged against these people that the moment the door is open, the, the guards around the door were inflamed and engulfed and incinerated. But all the while, these three plus one men are alive in the furnace. Do you realize that? It was the three friends... And when they opened the door, they realized there was a fourth. Yeah. Well, who was that? That was Jesus. He's standing with them in the fire. Not out here somewhere going, I hope you get through it. But standing right beside them, shoulder to shoulder. Incredible stories. I mean, sometimes I think we hear these stories so many times as a kid, they lose their power, they lose their effect. But don't ever lose that, that sense of awe of what God did. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I mean, they conquered all of Israel. Incredible. These, these ragtag people did all this. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, this is incredible stories about people who faced such um, adversity, such tribulations, such trials, but by faith God comes and they rescues them. You can almost see them reading it and cheering and being all excited about it. Can you see that? Great days of God. Incredible acts of God. But then look how the verse continues. And others were tortured. Well, that doesn't sound so exciting. I mean, we were on a roll here. This was... This was you know, going up to a crescendo and all of a sudden you just kind of, you know, pull the table out from the guy. And others are tortured. 
not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. I mean, it's incredible and easy to trust God when you know that, you know, it's going to turn out in the end and, and, and you know, everyone's going to be happy. They live happily ever after and the hero rides off into the sunset. But the reality is it's not always the case. People die of illness. Marriages aren't restored. Children get hurt. They die. They get sick. Some things don't seem to get fixed. Some things don't seem to turn around. And so for these people, they were tortured and they did not accept their release. They said, no, I refuse to go in order that they may obtain a better resurrection. And I, I think in part, it's a better resurrection today because as we'll see in chapter 12, what that discipline does is, and this tribulation does, is it really reinforces the fact of our, or reinforce within us the understanding of dependence upon Him. And so the better resurrection could have been for now that they saw Jesus and experienced Him more in a better way. But it also may be a better resurrection in the, the other side of eternity. Because what we do here matters. I don't know how, but it does to some degree. And I don't know what the reward is, but it's not for the reward. It's for really the better chance to know Him. And others experience mockings and scourgings. Do you know what scourging is? It's one of those nice, soft, gentle words. It's the ripping of the flesh. Anyone remember the, the passion by Mel Gibson, the movie, The Passion of the Christ? And when, when in that scene there where Jesus is being beaten, he's you know tied up to a pole, and they got the whip, but on the end of the whip is a ball with spikes on it, metal spikes, and the whip comes down, or the chain comes down, and then it rips his flesh. I mean, it, it's just, it's an awful, ugly scene. In fact, it's probably because of that one scene alone. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I want to watch the movie anymore because it just is such an ugly scene. Well, that's what scourging is. It's not soft and gentle. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom this world was not worthy. It's simply remarkable to me. Simply remarkable that these great men endured such horrific suffering and abuse, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Imagine what faced these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They thought it was bad up to this point, but it was about to get far worse. Around 70 AD, Rome is burned. And Nero needs a scapegoat because he's to blame. So who does he blame? He blames the Christians. And it's now all-out war on Christians. In fact, he then marches into Jerusalem, sacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, rips it down brick by brick. 
and it's still not there today as a result. Scattering the Jews, scattering the Christians all the way to the ends of the Roman Empire. All kinds of abuse now. Now they are imprisoned, they are being fed to lions. They are, you know, and that's done for sport and entertainment. What do you want to do today? Oh, let's go to the Coliseum and see some Christians being eaten by lions. Oh, that's my favorite thing to do on a Thursday. That's how they were treated. One emperor would take Christians, stick them on a pole in his garden, set them on fire so they could serve as torches for his garden parties. That was the abuse that these people took. And people willingly went to this. It's it's simply remarkable. And I can imagine how these Jewish Christians receiving this letter, reading this letter, and then there's that day where they're on the run now. Because the Roman centurions are chasing them to capture them so that they could be the next person to be fed to lions or burn on a torch. And while they're on the run, they're thinking back to these passages. And knowing it's worth it. It's better to experience the pain that I'm going through right now in order that I may know Him. Because the reward is worth it. Again, you and I, thankfully, we don't experience it in this degree. But we go through our own trials and tribulations. And they all can produce the same result that we might know Him, that we might trust Him. And it's funny, as you read this and you think about these people, they were worried about when their next breath was going to be like. And sometimes we just worry about, you know, when can I get the big screen TV? Or when, you know, when can I go out for dinner next? Or when can I take that next vacation? I'm not trying to belittle us. I think I just want us to put some things in perspective and to see that there is something far more than just the pleasures of this world. And when we have that perspective, I think, and we can see how great and how awesome our God is to provide to these people going through this, how much more than can He provide for you and I? In a, in a world, in a culture that is as affluent as, you, as the one we live in. In verse 39, And all these, all these incredible men and women of faith, having gained approval through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, there's two ways to interpret this, what he means by it. One is it could be referring how to the Old Testament saints, they waited for the cross and were all made perfect with us at the same time. So you remember how in Ephesians, I think it's in chapter 4, how Paul talks about how, um, how Christ, he descended down and he preached the gospel and he went down to Abraham's bosom and he led the captives free. Because all the Old Testament saints... All they had were those blood and goat sacrifices could never take away their sins. All it could do was cover. So they had a momentary reprieve and and they kind of went down to Abraham's bosom and were waiting until the cross. 
And then Jesus came down and he rescued them and he led the captives free and ascended up into heaven with them. This great train of captives. And so it could be referring to the fact that they never experienced the righteousness that we have. Righteousness was imputed to them, but they were never made righteous until the cross. But also the Holy Spirit never lived in them. He'd only come upon them, and even then it was only temporary and for you know, but a moment, and then he would leave. But you and I, you and I have what Paul calls the great mystery of the gospel, which was hidden from these Old Testament saints in Colossians 1, 26 and 27. This great mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so one option could be talking about that, how Christ made you and I and the Old Testament saints all righteous and perfect and joined himself to him at the same time. They never experienced it. So when they're going through all those trials, they never had Christ in them. But when you and I go through these trials, we're so much better off because we've got Jesus in us. But it could also mean Referring to when we all receive new heavenly bodies at the second coming of Christ. You see, it says there that dead in Christ will rise first, and then you and I, or if we're still around, or anyone else at that point that are Christians in Christ that are, are st- still around, they will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And they too will have new heavenly bodies. So it could be referring to that. I don't know which one. I think either or. Maybe both. I don't think we have to be dogmatic in one of the two. I think the point is that these people, they never got to know an experience that we got. So how much better off are we? If we will trust Him. That's what makes this chapter such, such, an, an, you know, such a great and incredible chapter of the New Testament. Really of all the Bible. Because it's to be one of encouragement. One to, to uh, strengthen us and to embolden us. That Jesus is better, so live by faith. So trust Him. Amen. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.